Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50% to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Welcome to Midweek Late Lunch on LMFM Radio. Lots of chat as usual, music and more besides over the next couple of hours. If you want to join in the conversation, don't forget the usual numbers. 086-1800-658 by WhatsApp or text gets in touch with us on the show. Well, I suppose introducing my first guest today was starting on a morbid theme on late lunch and she'll probably give out to me when I say that. But when I tell you she's an in-demand speaker, she's a coach, she's a humanist, a celebrant. But today, in her capacity, she's joining me as chairperson of End of Life Ireland. I'm delighted to say hello to Janie Lazar. Hello, Janie. Hello and good afternoon to you. And yes, you're absolutely right. It's not a morbid subject at all. It's part of life. And that, to me, is is where the conversation really needs to start. And do you get that all the time from people? You know, I'm not out of step there. Do people say that to you all the time? Oh, God, it must be shocking morbid to be talking about this. It, 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 it's a common uh, comment that, it, that is made. But I, I, I tell you, and I, I'll always say it, people who are uh, dealing with, with a very uh, life-limiting or... Uh, terminal condition quite often have the blackest sense of humour, the funniest, because you know that's that's a way of coping. Mm. Do you know in Ireland we they say we're very good at doing that when somebody passes on, gathering round the bereaved, remembering the soul that has gone. But I know this as well, and myself and Louise, my producer, were talking about this just before we came on air. There is a fear in this country about talking about death, that it'll nearly invite it on, that we're tempting faith. How do you get over that? Well, in, in, in many ways, I don't think you do. But, the, you know, surely the, the, the greatest gift of all that you can give somebody is your time and being there for that person, giving them the opportunity to talk about it. it you know, it, it's like the elephant in the room. Mm, it is. And, you know, just just saying, listening to somebody, being there, um, it. You know, the gift of time isn't what people who are dying have. Mm. And so to put pressure on somebody, inadvertently or otherwise, to pretend as though nothing's happening, it's not, I'm not saying you should address something full on because, you know, it's, it, it, it's a delicate area. You want, you want normality, but also to give somebody a few moments of grace mm. where, you know, mm. how are you doing? Are you Okay. Mm. just creating that space for somebody to talk about it openly and openly you, you know yeah. you know I hear what you're saying and it brings me back uh, many moons ago when my own dad died and he was terminally ill at the time and it was, it was like the elephant in the room we, we sidestepped it we danced around it he did we did he always said he was you know going to get get out of this and whatever but and we didn't address it at all and it's a regret I have to say I have to this day that we didn't properly say goodbye or address the issue now that's quite a while ago do you think it's changed you know even though we're saying it's an elephant in the room do you think we're coming round more to talking about this 
I, I think so, and it, it, it's important that that we do. I, I think the other thing that is really important is for people to talk about, if, if you like, death and it being part of life whilst we're healthy. Mm. That was a question I was just going to come to. When do you raise the hair on this one? Do you wait until somebody's, you know, very ill or, you know, facing a, a fight for life? Or should this come up? At what stage? Tell me, you tell me, Jenny. What stage should this come up in conversation? I, th- I think no time is too soon because whilst there's nothing wrong with you, it, it, it's the ideal time. But, you know, talking about what you what you want, what you don't want, what you might believe in, just so that people know as and when things happen, because the one certain thing in life is, we, you know, life is a one-way journey. And there, there is a certain point, whether you believe in afterlife or not, we are all going to die at some point. And I, I suppose if, if I look back when I was in my early 40s, the first time, <clears throat> excuse me, the first time I had cancer, I just got on with it. It was okay I'm sitting there in front of a consultant and I mean, there are many issues here I could talk to you about the use of language, for example. And he says to me, you've got an abnormal cell count. What does that mean to the average lay person? Mm. My mind is like a ticker tape going round and round saying, oh, okay, what does that mean? Is it cancer? Is it, um, am I going to die? You have all of these things going around in your head. So, if I bring it back to when is the right time to raise something, I think it's it's before you're on, if you, if you like packing your little bag to go to hospital, yeah. have you got your will done? Mm. Even if you think you've got nothing to leave people, have you got your will done? Do you have an enduring power of attorney? If you find yourself in a situation where uh, for some reason you're incapacitated, and, you know, let's, Let's be honest, accidents happen. Every time you go into a hospital and you have a general anaesthetic, they, you know, you're filling in a different form then. Yes. Which is an expression of your wishes should something happen. So you need all of these things in place. And I'm the world's worst. You know, it was, I think, the second time I was on my way into a hospital. The week before, I was checking whether my will was updated. I had to get an enduring power of attorney done. You know, we shouldn't leave these things to the last minute. So you're saying, along with those things that are we know about and probably can talk about and address, we need to talk about this voluntary assisted dying. Now, the Dying with Dignity Bill is on the table at the moment. Uh, Gino Kenny has brought it forward and uh, it is in the public domain, overtaken by other media matters, may I say, at the minute, uh, which we know uh, too well. But it, it, it's something that's going to come into focus later this year and beyond. You are for somebody making a decision that if they are at end of life, that they can make a decision actually to cut their journey short. That's what you want, is it? In in, in a nutshell, yes. I and many others believe that if somebody is at, if you like, that end stage where death is foreseeable, that... On the basis that there, there is, if, if you like, a, a system in place with uh, a system to be 
uh, assessed and deemed eligible under that you meet certain criteria, that all the legal safeguards and medical safeguards are in place, that having been assessed and deemed eligible and having expressed your wish to, to be able to choose an assisted death, that you should be allowed to do so. So why would, why would anybody at that stage be forced to undergo a prolonged period of unnecessary suffering? And suffering can mean many things to, to, to different people. Mm. So yes, it is an issue on the table. There is a committee up and running at the moment, thankfully. And this is some 10 years after Mari Fleming died. Yes. Uh, it's taken this long. And it, it, it's something Ireland is ready for. It just, we, we've had so many uh, changes in, in, I think, our government and politicians recognising that... People have the right to live their lives within reason to make choices for themselves. And choice is what, what lies at the heart of this legislation. Mm. Uh, you mentioned there about, you know, people, you know, having uh, perhaps issues around this. And some of them, faith and religion and beliefs and suffering is tied in with many faiths as well, that it's part of the human existence uh, that we have to deal with at times through our lives and at the end of our lives. The other thing you'll hear people saying, there's a fear that this will open the floodgates, that it's only the tip of the iceberg, that this will be taken out of people's hands and used to really clean up society when people reach an age. They're of no use anymore. This is an easy way out. What do you say to those, uh, you know, points? And they're being made. You, you'll hear them, I'm sure. I hear them all the time. And what I would say is, this is, if you like, many, there are many countries where voluntary assisted dying has been introduced. And I would emphasize the words voluntary assisted dying. And language is something I'd love to um, discuss further with you. Where there is a legal and safe framework and where robust safeguards are in place, this does not happen. Without legislation, things are happening anyway. Mm. So and the, op- the options for people who don't want their suffering to continue are pretty grim. Mm. People can leave Ireland, can't they? They can leave Ireland and uh, go to a country where this is legal. They can indeed, uh, but anybody helping somebody to, in, in whatever way, to avail of an assisted death, death elsewhere can risk imprisonment of up to 14 years. Mm. So that there are a few different aspects of, that this legislation is going to have to address. There's, you know, a nervousness around it. I'll come back to that point again, and and that is understandable too. But of course, should there be the option? Like you know, I often think, and it's a, it's a strange comparison. You know, when when young people are opting for their um, g- g- university choices or whatever, there's a CAO change. You can change your mind. That that has to be built in at any stage, doesn't it? Oh my goodness, yes. The I mean, for, yes, we're we're advocating for assisted dying to be legislated for, but we don't want something that's not safe. Mm. 
uh, yes, a person has to be of a certain age, and normally it's over 18 in, in many of the jurisdictions. They have to be of sound mind, and they have to meet the criteria. Let, let me put it another way for you. People take out life insurance, home insurance. Having met criteria and been assessed and deemed eligible means that you have a choice whether or not you exert it or not. Just because you have, if you like, that in place right up until the last minute, and that's in all of the procedures where this is administered, a doctor, particularly when it's a medical-assisted death, a doctor, part of the procedure, is always checking with the individual that they are aware of what they're doing and this is indeed what they have asked for and what they want. Mm. And there is a doctor's group, by the way, in, in Ireland, just so that your uh, listeners are aware. Uh, they're called Irish Doctors Supporting Maid which is Medical Assistance in Dying, and their website is made, M-A-I-D dot I-E. And doctors are very, they see death. They see dying people often as part of their, their practice. They're not in a position at the moment to either help or advise. And coming back to your point about religion, does that in, not interfere? Will it impact somebody's choice? Mm. What I would say there is, if that is your belief, that this isn't right for you, then you are in, entitled not to support it. Yeah. But why, why would somebody not support another person in their choice when something is both legal and available? Mm. The... The whole area of uh, deterioration of the mind, I talk about mm -hmm. Alzheimer's in particular, and there'd be a real worry about that with somebody, you know, who develops Alzheimer's and then cannot, may not have made a decision beforehand. What's the scenario there, do you see, beyond that? You know, can somebody make a decision for them? Surely not. Well, this is uh, part of a very big uh, global discussion because the countries that haven't introduced a framework for that are now reviewing their legislation. So in Australia and New Zealand in particular, they are revisiting this because as what happens in almost every country, groups of people who are excluded then come back and challenge the legislation. Mm. or ask for consideration to be given and research to be done. But there are always um, s safeguards and systems put in place. I'm not the Alzheimer's or dementia expert, but, you know, let, let's be honest here. What do most people say at different, about different things? Or oh, if I should get this, or if I, mm. you know, if I should... I mean, one of my closest friends always says... If I lose my marbles, I'm not going there. I've seen my uncle, I've seen this, I've seen that. Everyone has their own view. But there are ways of ensuring safety. Yes. And, and fears are justified. Of course they are. Mm. 
and, and that is a, that is an area I know would be a particular worry for people. You know what I mean? Where somebody else could have a power of attorney over somebody's life, and that that certainly is one that I see as a big issue with this. Um, but you just to, just to throw in there, this is where the it's not a legal document. Yeah. Uh, but this is where a lot of work is being done throughout the world at the moment to look at how by using something like an advance request or the advanced healthcare directive, if if somebody's wishes were not to continue life, having reached a certain stage, then for those wishes to be taken account of. Mm. So it is all being looked at with, with great care, with great care. Yeah. But it's a bigger question. It's a bigger question, of course. It is, and there are many facets to it, and I'm sure there's going to be uh, intense debate around it in the country here. And, I, and look, I'm going to read a message I've just got, it, and I'm getting several messages. If you're affected by what we're talking about, do get in touch with us. If you have an opinion, do you feel this is a good way to go? Uh, this legislation should be enacted. Uh, have you concerns? Let me know. I'd love to hear from you on the show today. 86 658 text or WhatsApp me. That's 86 1800-658 by text or WhatsApp. They're coming into me here. Let me just read this one to you, Janie. Um, good afternoon, okay. Jerry. My younger brother was diagnosed with a terminal illness. Towards the end of his life, he had a really hard time breathing and even sitting or lying down. He asked me three times to help him stop the pain. He had the drugs that would have let him go to sleep pain-free. I refused and to this day I regret it. He deserved to end his life on his own terms. Fortunately, he went peacefully in his sleep in the end. Yeah. I'm, I'm, the, these, and we get uh, emails, texts, letters, uh, phone calls all the time. And all we can do is say that we are fighting, actively advocating for this to be progressed for this very reason, one of my dearest friends had motor neuron, mm. and his daily fear, if not hourly, was not being able to breathe. And he said to me, "It's insupportable that I should die the way that I will." And that's exactly it. Mm. It's, it is, and I'm sure you have many, many more stories like that. Look, Jenny, I have to leave it there for today. By us talking about it, you know, we're airing the issue here and it's reaching lots and lots of people as well. And it's bringing up the topic, which I started with saying to you, it's a very difficult issue to address. I'll be back to you, I know. Chairperson of End of Life Ireland, Jenny Lazar, thank you so much for joining me on the show today. Thank you. Thank you very much. You're welcome. I'm all for it, Jerry says one listener. I don't want to be around when I'm in a terrible state at the end of my life. Another one says against it totally. I don't want this to come in in Ireland, Jerry. It just shows you the contrasting views, doesn't it? Paddy's been on as well to say, uh, Jerry, this is a simply beautiful personal documentary. It's called How to Die, Simon's Choice. I, I, I'm familiar with it myself. It is well worth looking at. And thanks for reminding us about that, Paddy. Well, Louise, to lighten the load a little bit, the, do you know a fella called Joey Chestnut? <laughs> no. But I'd like to say some old chestnut. I think he'll have to have a chat about, you know, 
his mortality because he's the world uh, hot dog eating record holder. He's the champion. He gives the man in the world who can eat the most hot dogs in 10 minutes. How many would you think he ate? Now, big, big hot dogs, like full-size dogs. I can't have a drink of water with him, I probably. don't think so, no. He, I, I, look, I won't even ask you to guess. 10 minutes, yeah, go on. 10 minutes, Joey Chestnut consumed 62 hot dogs. Wow. Full, full-length, big hot dogs. World champion. And he is the champion, the world champion, for the 16th time in a row. Wow. <laughs> does anybody else take part? <laughs> oh, does others taking part? But the fellow who was second at 49, he's well behind 62. Is, yeah. And the lad third at 47. <sighs> wow. Many of you think you could eat in 10 minutes. Oh, will you stop? You like hot dogs. You nearly kill me here one day. What did you have me eaten one day? Stuff in them. How many could I get into my mouth at the one time? Jaffa cakes. You remember that? <laughs> you remember the Jaffas? I got six or seven into me gob at we'll once. What to do with marshmallows tomorrow? But, <laughs> 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 what will you have me like at all? Um, uh, I'll definitely be writing down my wishes. Um, yeah, and the women, there's a women's championship run at the same time. And the woman who won it, I love these names, Joey Chestnut's the man, the cha- male champion, Mickey Sudo. Isn't that a great name? <laughs> That's a brilliant name. Mickey Sudo. She's some Sudo, all right. <laughs> she downed 39 and a half hot dogs wow. in the 10 minutes. 39 and a half. Do you like hot dogs? No, hate them. Oh, I like them. I'd be sick of I like them a hot dog. And I love it with loads of mustard and red sauce on yeah, it. Yeah, but there's nothing and else. Onions. Like, the bun itself isn't very oh, soft. It's a long... And, oh, you can you get... You know, get you, no butter on it. Oh, no, you can get them in soft ones. They're nice. Can you can get them in soft ones. You don't full, get butter. Full hot dog. A full hot dog. And no, no. Red sauce uh, and uh, mustard and onions. That's what you get. Yeah, that's yeah, what you get. No. I love me hot dogs. I do. Anyway, what's more... the difference between it and a sausage sandwich? <laughs> different sausage, I know, but uh, there's a big, big difference. The mm. completely different sausages. Number one, and one's a sandwich, and others in a hot dog bun. Mm-hmm. I'll leave the hot dogs with you. Ah, do I, thanks. You're very kind. You, and you have enjoy, to share them with me. You enjoy oh. your sausages. Thanks you enjoy your sausages. Anyway, <laughs> my conversation with Janie Lazar, top of the show, chairperson of End of Life Ireland, and more of your comments. Eileen's been on to say. Jerry, no one should have the right to save someone, particularly the government, of course, of any country, uh, if you're old and that you're of no use. It's not right. The only person who should have control over one's life is the person themselves, even if they have a terminal illness. Thanks indeed for that, Eileen. 086-1800-658 by WhatsApp or text gets us on the show this afternoon. Moving on, one of our regulars is with us now. And when I tell you what we're going to talk about. Well, I better explain why we're going to talk about it today because I was watching RT News recent evening, a recent evening, and I was really touched by a report from Sinead Hussey, one of our good friends here in LMFM who worked here and then moved on to greater things in RTE. Sinead met the Collum family in Strokestown who'd lost their little girl, Kate Collum. She was only five. I tell you, it broke my heart watching it. It really, really did. It touched me deeply. Uh, That child hadn't a day's bad health and suddenly this came upon her and they lost her uh, back in March. Her two brothers, one older, one younger, and the whole family are trying to cope with the loss at this point in time. But she was taken by Strep A. And did you know there have been 25 deaths since October last year in children under 18 with Strep A in this country? So we're going to talk about it now for the next while with our doc, Dr. Kate McCann. Afternoon, Kate. Hi, Jerry. Well, Kate, so those figures are, are, are quite worrying when I, when I say the number of children on, under 18 there. 
what what's underpinning this? Well, maybe let's talk first. What what is Strep A? So yeah, the first thing, Jerry, is that those numbers are are, are quite scary. But I think the, the little nuance in there is that twelve of those deaths are children. Mm. Um, but the thirteen of them would be over eight, uh, people over eighteen, and some of those would be the elderly. So we've got twenty five overall. But I think any death of a child is is is, is um, horrible. And it, it, when we hear statistics like that, when we hear um, you know the story of poor K column, it's it, 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 it's it's very it's not only moving but it's it's very scary mm. screw based strep and the reason that it sounds so scary is because it's a really common bacteria um it lives uh, most people have some either uh um, on their skin or in their throat and most of the time it causes no bother it's one of it's one of what we call commensal bacteria that you know we find in the normal flora that's um on our bodies so what happens then that it becomes a serious threat to life? Yeah, see, this is the tricky thing. So um, strep A um, can cause different sorts of infections. So, you know, a lot of times everyone would know strep throat, I think. Um, they'd, have, they'd have heard that. They've gone to their yeah. GP and they, yeah. they wonder whether or not it's just a viral sore throat or whether it's one you need the biotics for. So strep throat it can cause some tonsillitis. It can cause some skin infections. I think many... Parents who might have um, gotten the that kind of little yellowy skin infection in their child's um, their child for called impetigo, um, and it can even cause a little more serious. It can cause scarlet fever in young children, and those are you those kind of infections. They're really easily treated with antibiotics, but we've had an, a trend over the last year, not just in Ireland. This should be really clear. This is a, a kind of a, a more international trend of finding where the bacteria um, goes where it shouldn't go. It goes into places, um, say like your lungs, your bloodstream, and it becomes what we call invasive. And once in, it becomes invasive, um, it can cause serious illness. Now, that's the real worry when it reaches mm. that point. But for yeah. listeners today, can you reassure them at all? If it's uh, copped and diagnosed early, a, a full recovery is possible? It, it, you definitely increase your chances. Like you can never, you know, look. You never say everything is absolutely possible, and um, but yeah, the more likely it is when you are worried that something serious is going on, the sooner you seek care, the better the outcome across the board. Because um, as as a rule, and um, strep A is something we can treat with antibiotics. Occasionally, though, strep can cause and um, something called toxic shock syndrome. Um, so the body goes into a state called shock where the organs are affected. And that can be more difficult to treat once it, it hits that stage. And it can happen quite quickly, especially in children. Mm. And uh, you, you've mentioned, I see you're writing about it, that it's all vulnerable groups besides children uh, are newborns, those who are over 75, women who are pregnant beyond 37 weeks or who've given birth in the last four weeks or so, and anyone who's had chicken pox. They're risk categories. They're risk categories. Doesn't mean it'll happen to you, and it doesn't mean that. And again, this can happen to you outside that risk category. Um, so the risks in this case just means that when, because there's a load of experts looking at this, um, they're looking for a trend. They're looking for um, to make the data make sense, and they realize that those categories they seem to see more incidents in those categories. But again, you always have cases that don't fit that, and you have many people in those categories that are absolutely just fine. Is there a vaccination against it? I'm sure that's the first thing an awful lot of people are thinking. And I know people, uh, vaccination doesn't sit well with some people. But is there one available specifically for this? 
No, there isn't a vaccination for strep. And that said, I think one of the, I think it's something I'll hear me and a couple other doctors talking about is that when it comes to chickenpox, and that is a common complication. We have a common, common, common complication, chickenpox, both pneumonia and sepsis that comes from the skin. And that basically what happens is um, that the, is that all those openings, those, 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 um, those, you know, those little spots you get allows bacteria mm. to get into your body. Would measles come in there too? Would measles be a factor? I just think of the common ones with children. No, and, no. And as far as we know, a connection between measles and strep. We, I don't. I haven't seen a strong okay. one in the data. Now, I'm not an expert there, so someone might want to correct yes. me. Yes, I've seen that. But I think one of the things is why we're there is yeah, we are seeing a a, a rise in measles um, across Europe. Mm. And at the moment, a, a disease that we had really thought we were kind of starting to see the back of, thankfully, because it's it can cause a lot of problems. But so, yeah, I mean, the, the routine vaccinations um, protect against so many things that are preventable. Yes. Yeah, so you have vaccinations for measles, for chickenpox. What about the flu thing that children get or can get if their parents wish or they wish themselves the little spray up the nose? Is that helpful in any way? Yeah, now there's an interesting study that came out of the UK and they tracked um, strep infections in children over a four-year period and they found that children who had received the nasal flu vaccine um, had been less likely to present with um, infections related to strep. Now, the, the connection between the two of those isn't fully understood, but it was a really interesting finding. Um, and yeah, the nasal flu vaccine is thankfully, uh, took a long time to come in here, but thankfully we now have a nasal flu vaccine available to children in Ireland for free and it's rolled out around October every year. What about good practice? And I'm thinking back to uh, COVID times. Should we wash the hands of ourselves and we were careful about sharing things? And you know what I'm talking about there? Are yeah. all Is that type of advice good to, you know, instill or try to get your children into a, a routine of doing things like that? Well, is that helpful? Really is. Um, one of the one of those moments that sticks with you is I remember um, seeing a patient post COVID uh, a couple of years ago, and uh, they asked me at the end of the consultation. They said, now that they've had COVID, they still need to keep washing their hands. And I kind of stopped. It was like, well, you know, washing hands was always a thing. Um, you know, I've heard people telling me, look, you know, oh, it's good to quote unquote build up immunity. Um, but the thing is, is that there's many things in our environment that can make us sick that we can't build up an immunity to. Um, think that, that if you think of things like common cold, winter vomiting bug, and, um, and infectious things like you know the, the worms and pinworms, and these things are in our environment. We don't really build up an immunity to them. So, I mean, no matter what you don't want to get, washing your hands is a good defense against it. There you are. That is a, an old wives' tale in Ireland for sure, Kate. Uh, it was always a thing. All oh, your immunity when you're exposed to these things will be better. But there you are. I think it's always good to practice good hygiene, not sharing and wash your hands. As you say, you are the expert. Now, I suppose this is the, the, the crux of this for parents listening today. When do you push the red button to go to your GP, the doc on call or the A&E if you're concerned? A few pointers there that should raise alarm bells, please. Yeah, so I, I think this this is an important one. And when I, I blog a lot of times, I like to blog with my with my, with my hat on as a doctor who's a who's a mother. Um, um, and then when I originally started blogging, blogging, I always talked from this perspective of, look, what advantage do I have as a doctor who's a mother? By the way, it's 
a lot less than you think. But I, I think one of the messages to get out there to, to mothers is that, you know, you're you're your child's advocate to access health care. Um, and, you know, while your mother's gut isn't always right, um, it's sometimes it's really not far off the mark. So if you're looking at your kid and you're like, I am worried, it's not right. I really encourage mothers to to trust to trust their instincts and at least pick up the phone and, and talk to somebody, the GP practice nurse, the GP. And if it, and if you're if it's nothing to worry about, you'll be reassured, and and that's absolutely fine. And I think it's a, a horrible thing in shortage of both primary care and well healthcare across the board that we are um, feeling that we can't reach out as often as we used to and double check, am I worrying unnecessarily? But I think if your gut says, my child's not right, I'm really worried, and, you know, reach out and ask for help. I think there's no better thing than the gut to actually advise you in a cross life. But certainly with this, that relationship with the child, it's never far off the mark, as you say. So just things like if a child has high, low temperature, if they have fever, if they are off their food, if they're listless, if their eyes look, you know, dead in their head, as you'd see, things like that. And it's it, it's hanging there. They're the, the signs. They are really. And I think some of the things that are really important to note is that, you know, a, a temperature in a newborn always asks for help. Always. Um, if a temperature is more than 39 degrees in a baby under six months old, always ask for help, you know. And I think especially with very young children, it's it's more difficult because a child who's who's a bit older, more verbal, can really tell you that they're feeling bad. And it's those children that are so young that can't tell us those are the ones we're always worried about. But yeah, I think if they're not feeding, if your child is in nappies and they haven't had a wet nappy for 12 hours, if they're very unresponsive, if they're not eating or drinking for hours at a time, um, you know, you, you should get help sooner rather than later. I always say to mine, err on the side of caution. I have a big file with my GP, Kate. <laughs> I have to tell you, I have. But uh, maybe I'm too cautious at times. But look, seriously, in the case of a very small infant or a child, you don't want to be regretting not, you know, moving or thinking, oh, maybe I'm just, uh, you know, overreacting here. The message is caution always, gut. Absolutely, and I'll say I've been through too. I, I'm my um, my own son was was very ill last November, and I blogged a bit about it. And I sat there right before I took him in, thinking, you know, you know, am I am I overreacting? You know, it, am I too worried? It turned out I wasn't. And we were we were in Crumlin, and they were amazing for three days. He's absolutely fine. But you know, even I sat there, in knowing what I know, and I sat there and second guessed my my gut for uh, for a good few minutes before I put him in the car and. And drove them in. So it's hard to do. I think if you're concerned about this, you want to see the full list, I'd recommend if you go to the HSC website, you just type in sepsis. There's some wonderful resources, including a little video showing you what to look for in children and also adults. And I think the HSC has a really good to kind of list it out in a little video and it's really accessible if you're kind of worried about the topic. There you go. Good advice there from Kay today under sepsis on the hse.ie website. And check this woman out, MDoc Health. She's all over social media and she's always blogging about really important subjects when it comes to all of our health. It's great to talk to you. 
When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. As always, thank you for covering that one off today. I really appreciate it. And I'm sure our listeners do too, Kate. Until the next time, thanks a million. Thanks so much, Jerry. Bye. Bye-bye. That's Dr. Kate McCann there with us on Late Lunch. And again, I just mentioned that little girl, Kate Collum. Oh, my God almighty. You'd take a tear from a stone from Strokestown in Roscommon, five years of age. Back in March, she passed away. May she rest in peace and God comfort her family. It really, really touched me when I saw that news story. Late Lunch, LMFM Radio. We're back in a moment. Hadaway. What is love on your late lunch this Wednesday afternoon? A recent two on Tuesday on late lunch. That song, 1993, huge number one across Europe and Ireland, but didn't make top spot in the UK, which is the chart we focus on each week. So there you are. Nice to hear it again. Louise, I have to go back to the hot dogs. I just have to. I have to go back because I have to. I forgot to tell you something about the hot dog, about Joey Chestnut and, and Mickey, <laughs> Mickey Sudo. Anyway, jo, Joey, Joey Chestnut is the world champion. Won the title again on the 4th of July. Happens every 4th of July in America. World champion at 62 hot dogs in 10 minutes. That's not his record. He had, he downed 76 in 2021. And he just says afterwards, he doesn't feel well for about four days. <laughs> Am I surprised? Say <laughs> he has to wear fairly loose waistbands. Oh, my God. And you know what he gets? First prize for the World Championship. <laughs> ten, 10 quid. <coughs> Excuse me. $10,000. Oh, well, OK. Not so bad. No. For the top eater. 10,000 he gets. Um, Imagine getting 10,000 free hot dogs. Yeah. <laughs> 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 you can eat them over the next two years. Probably um, look at them. Well, I'm sure you'd be sick of them after this. Anyway, it takes place at Nathan's famous flagship restaurant on the corner of Surf and Stillwell Avenues in Coney Island on the edge of the south of Brooklyn in New York City. That's where it happens every year. And talk about the rain we had yesterday mm. evening here. There was an almighty downpour and lightning and thunderstorm with there's thousands gather for this every year they had to scatter out of the rain and the danger of the lightning and they thought the event mightn't happen <laughs> but anyway the storm cleared and away they went and they scoffed all those hot dogs well done to all concerned it's produced on our doorstep at Glyde Farm, Mansfieldstown near Castle Bellingham. It's multi, multi award winning. It dons the menus of Michelin starred restaurants around the place. It's in demand. It's simply lovely. What am I talking about? Bellingham blue cheese and I'm delighted to say hello again to the man behind it. And there's a woman behind it too. Peter Thomas, good afternoon. Good afternoon. That was a very, very good introduction. Thank you very much. <laughs> Not at all. It's well deserved. Listen, it's so long since we've spoken and I just wanted to catch up with you. You're yeah, st- no. sh- she's still with you, is she, in- Anita? Oh, she's still, yeah, I'm still, she's still allowing me to hang about. <laughs> good on you. Well, 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 since 2000, you're from Glasgow originally. What brought you here and how did the cheese thing start? Remind us, well, Peter. I, I was born in Glasgow. My parents are from just outside Donegal Town, both of them. So they moved back many years ago. 
And my mother just said she had enough of Glasgow and wanted to go back to Donegal. So we all moved, just everybody moved back. And then eventually I moved down to Louth and started the cheesemaker. Simple as that. You know, simple as that. And and why cheese? Why did you go into the cheese? What, was it something in your background? Did you spot an opportunity? What? Well, we actually, uh, I, I, coming from Glasgow back to, from a city back to like a, a rural part of Ireland outside Donegal Town, I always loved the, the farming end of it. And mm. uh, I used to watch my grandmother and aunt making butter. And I loved the, the butter. I loved the process. I used to carry the milk down there to take the cream off and just make the butter. And then I'd sit down with a big um, plate of spuds and try and eat half of the butter on top of the spuds. Usually more butter than spuds. But uh, I always loved that. And I started out thinking of making butter. Uh, there was nobody else at that time in Ireland actually making butter apart from the big companies. And we went round and we we just spent nearly a, a year just travelling around bits of Ireland, going weekends and stuff. And uh, we seen there was a niche for butter, but very difficult to make and, and get right. But there was also an opening there for cheese. And we, we pinpointed two different cheeses and eventually we went for the one, the blue cheese, because there was no... At that stage, there was no unpasteurised blue cheese in Ireland mm. made from raw milk. So we decided we would look to go down that road and try that. And that's basically how we get into it. We've done an awful lot. Spent two and a half years trial and error then on top of that just to, to actually get the recipe right, mm. you know. And, and uh, That's the thing about it. It is unpasteurised raw milk from beautiful Frisians. Have you many Frisians? Well, I, I, it was actually, we started out with uh, Nita's brother's cows, because yeah. I'm a firm believer, if you're milking cows, stay away from making cheese. Yeah. Uh, and if you're making cheese, stay away from the cows. Right. But an odd time, he wouldn't catch me, and I'd have to be helping them round them up yeah. or take them to different fields and stuff. But um, that's how we started out, and uh, we had uh, a great time with him. And then we, we started getting, and Nita's cousin, God rest him, Paddy Mathis, uh, Paddy, a gentleman, uh, when we started getting milk off him, uh, the same, he had, a, he had about 200, 250 Frisian cows, and uh, we started using his milk then. It was fantastic, really. Uh, there was no difference in the two farms for the milk. They were right beside each other, practically yeah. adjacent, so there was no uh, no problem there. And like we're only talking a quarter of a mile up the road, so uh, you know, you're basically on our doorstep. And and are you still sourcing locally there from those men or others? Oh yeah, no, no, no. It's always the single source. That's yes. It. No, that's just one source. Very good. So no so you 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 leave the cows to the professionals and they do all yeah. their stuff with them and then you just take the raw produce and away you go and you work your magic and produce this wonderful cheese. Is the blue? Do you only do the blue? Uh, I used to do uh, in the summertime. I used to make some. Uh, other other cheeses, but I haven't made any now uh, this year or last year. I mm. just kind of concentrated on the blue, just doing whatever we do with the blue, you know. Yeah. Um. Sometimes it can be awkward to do something else. Henry Ford once said, "I'll give you any colour you want as long as it's black." <laughs> well, unfortunately for me, blue cheese because the mould and the air, the spores attack everything else. So to make something else, you have to be very quick and very. You have to have it right. You couldn't do something that's only half right. So it's just. Specialise more than that now. Yeah, to do something else. So, how do you get the blue veining into the cheese? Will you explain the process from start until you have the finished product? And if you can, in a, in a short space of time. Short space of time. Well, we actually uh, 
I put the mould in at the start of the process. The milk goes in. The milk goes into the tank along with a few other ingredients, and I put the mould in at that time. So that's agitated nearly the whole day, mm. uh, basically. So the, the mould's getting circulated around the milk at that stage, and it's heated up. Uh, when it's added, it coagulates. We cut that. We make it into curds. Curds go into moulds. They're turned a few times every day. Uh, and then it goes into a ripening room. Now, it could be in the ripening room, in it from... Uh, Two weeks to six weeks before there's any mould, the mould comes on the cheese. Yeah. On the outside, and what what we do then is I call it air air rating, or basically we pierce the cheese. Mm. So every cheese is pierced about sixty four times, and that lets air in, and the mould grows out, and the cheese is turned every day, and sometimes twice, and it's also rubbed. It's by you know gloved hand, so there's no machinery involved. So it's all done by hand. So when the mould then is actually grown out of the cheese, it could be in there for another six to eight weeks, and it's rubbed every day, and that gives it the nice sort of a greeny colour outside, like a skin. Mm. And then the mould is inside the cheese, and then the cheese basically just keeps getting mouldier and mouldier inside, depending on the temperature, temperature fridge, or how quick you want the actual mould to grow. Yeah. And so, in total, if I go to the extreme there, 14 weeks, say, uh, you, you have it at that stage you're talking about, how long will it store for then? 14 weeks, you had a very young blue cheese. Yeah. Uh, I, last year, two years ago, I was out in Italy doing, we do it every year, we go out and we do a raw milk cheese stand in Italy. Uh, lots of the cheesemakers that make raw milk go out and a lot of other people go out for a, a break. And basically, what I had uh, two years ago, I had a nine-year-old goat's cheese that I made. And I had an eight-and-a-half-year-old cow's milk cheese. I had two wheels, one of each. And the, the Italians couldn't get enough of them. <laughs> so the blue was eight-and-a-half years old? Yes, eight-and-a-half for one, and the, the goat's was nine. My, my, I can only imagine the flavour, and the Italians wanted you to do oh, the smell, you can smell it from one end of Italy to the other. But the, the thing is, it's how you keep the cheese. I keep telling people, any farmhouse cheese, regardless of what it is, should always be wrapped in tin foil in the fridge. That way it doesn't heat up in the fridge, keeps cool, it doesn't mature on quick. It's only when you let cheese out, you, people are supposed to leave it out on the table for maybe an hour, half an hour, an hour and a half before they eat it. And that way the cheese warms up, you get the, the flavour comes out, you get the full flavour. But if you do that with blue cheese and you leave it out, the blue cheese, mold, the mould grows quicker, mm. matures quicker. So basically the fridge and the tempo is keeping it cool. So cut off what you're going to consume and put the other straight back in the foil back into the fridge. Correct, 100% correct. Now there's, there's, there's your blue cheese top tip on late lunch this afternoon from the man that knows. Well, late lunch, yeah, but, but it's also for any farmhouse cheese because the farmhouse cheese will keep in that it doesn't matter what type of farmhouse cheese it is once it's in the tinfoil it keeps it cooler in the fridge and it will keep longer very good very good so on average for me the ordinary joe soap if i come across bellingham blue for sale uh how many what age will that cheese be it could be anything from uh i nor i don't release cheese uh, and if it's not ready but the minimum would be about five months four to five months, depending on the time of the year. Yeah. So if you're getting it in the shop or a supermarket or anywhere, uh, at the moment you'll get it at Market Square and Dundalk uh, every Friday. We're there up till three o'clock. 
Um, it's the one I have at the moment, uh, a minimum a year and a half. There you go. So um, it, it it's available in Dundalk. Where else? Where else can you get to? I know you supplied the restaurants and that. Have you other routes to customers? Well, I, I used to have quite a lot of other routes to customers, but I don't anymore. I, I scaled back yeah. for one reason or another. And uh, basically, it's kind of the market or some of the restaurants that do take it. They have it, uh, but they wouldn't have it for sale. They'd have it on the menus for yes. the likes of doing chicken wing dips and mm. stuff like that, or burgers. Mm. And I mean, the, uh, the burgers are very popular, especially out in Anagasin there. Uh, he does a Viking burger and he puts the blue cheese on top of it. Oh, now you're talking. It seems to be very, seems to be very, very popular. Yeah. That type of thing. So, Market Square Friday in the dock is your best bet to pick up Bellingham Blue Cheese. How much much would you produce in in a year? Do you you have a handle? Well, it's going to say it it depends on uh, production, sales, an awful lot. I mean, we make cheese and then we try and predict what we're going to sell, but it doesn't always work out that way. And hence, you could have cheese. Um, I don't have any at the moment, but years ago I'd have cheese three, four, five, six years old. Mm. I'd just be putting so much away. But I've stopped doing that because it gets, it's an awful lot of work. And, yeah. you know, I'd rather just have a, a few older, mature, mature ones. Uh, but at the moment now, unfortunately, I, I don't supply any supermarkets. So you just supply restaurants and you sell right. out of the market. And that's yeah. your own choice as well. But you're producing. Yeah. Uh, I'm sure you have regular customers calling to you in the square. Oh, that, we do, yeah. Yeah, yeah. They, yeah. they love what you do. What way does uh, Peter Thomas prefer to eat his uh, Bellingham Blue? Or what does he accompany it with? Well, <laughs> I'm going to say steak, number one. <laughs> uh, a nice, a nice uh, blue cheese dip. Yeah. Uh, but, oh, no, no. Um, just uh, crackers. Yeah. Uh, you know, ju- uh, just on a, a few crackers, mm. and uh, maybe, uh, and I don't just take. I wouldn't just eat the owner. Have maybe one or two other different types of cheese. You know, just as a, a treat, just to to have with it. You know, mm. um, uh, but no, normally just uh, two, one or two other cheeses, and just a few crackers. But no, as I say, the blue cheese dip, and uh, an odd time there, we would maybe do over pizzas. Uh, my daughter likes the homemade pizzas. We would do pizzas up and yes, come over that. Beautiful, as well. beautiful. You know, just to have. Mm. I think it's a, a beautiful taste. I know for a lot of people it's an acquired taste, and I understand that as well. But the saltiness of it, the the richness, I just couldn't describe it. It's a real favourite. I actually love to have it with maybe uh, some grapes or apple as well. It's it's a yeah. it's a nice foil yeah. for it also, and perhaps a little uh, dip with it as well. Mm. Um, the uh, the year that's been in it and uh, the milk quality, it's always of a good standard, I take it, from the local source there. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Like It's checked every day. Like yeah. The department... Are the, oh, they're strict, the, yeah. They're, they're, everybody's strict, but, and, and rightly so. But like there's, there's, the quality is just superb at the minute. Now, there's a few other farms around the milk. It's, you know, the quality is just fantastic. Yeah. You know, Ireland's renowned for its grass and its cows and its milk anyway. Yeah. So there's, there's very, very few, I would say, if any, bad milking people in Ireland. I oh, think they're course. all superb and they're all yes. doing... And, like, I mean, it's they're not they're doing it to have it right. They're not doing it to have it wrong. Oh. And it's just the quality. It's just superb. Mm. And it's just a pity that we're not getting the same support for raw milk, you know, as we should be getting because the quality is there and the standards is so high, it's unreal. Mm. 
Uh, well said and and we are renowned for it as well and the the product is absolutely brilliant and you know um, I was more talking about you know the weather in the spring was tough and then you had the dry spell but look at uh, farmers they have to cope with that as well and the produce uh, flows into you congratulations on all your awards and all the accolades you've received and you you know developing something really special here in the North East Belling and Blue is the name of the cheese I wish you well yourself and Anita, all the very best for the future and lovely well, well, to catch up with you Peter today Well I wouldn't have those awards only for the guys that have the milk yep. and the quality Now uh, just a quick uh, I, as I say, I go out to Italy every every year once in Bra for the cheese festival and the other, the other year then it's every two years it's for a food festival and you get Italians come up and saying the best milk in the world is Irish Mm. The they've been here they've tasted it they've tried it yeah. and they're just over the moon by it so I wouldn't have that without having them well said well done to the producers and the local producers around yeah. Castle Bellingham there who supply Peter with the raw milk and himself and Anita add time and care and love and you can taste oh. it when you eat the Bellingham blue cheese Peter away you go there thank you for joining thank me thank you very much talk to you again take care now bye bye that's uh, Peter Thomas there from Bellingham Blue Cheese. I love a cheese, blue cheese and a hot dog. I'll give that championship a go. A downpour of biblical proportions in Drogheda last evening caused havoc in different places around the town. If you've been on social media, I'm sure you've seen the images of the Lawrence Centre in Drogheda, which was particularly badly hit. Other areas of town as well. But uh, the rain was oh, unbelievable. It really, really was. And a- another business that was hit is a well-known business in Drogheda, one of the busiest centres in town in Hardman's Gardens. And John Walsh, uh, the proprietor, is on the line. John, afternoon. Thanks for joining me. Hiya, Jerry. Thanks for the call. Not at all. God, when we saw the images last evening, everybody's hearts went out for you. Just to tell listeners, Hardman's Gardens is sort of like a bowl, a U-shape, and you're at the base of the bowl there. Yeah, we are. I'd say there's about eight or nine roads and laneways, and they all come down to the one spot straight outside the door of the shop. Yeah. So there's been there's a history there. Obviously, before my time, I, I came here 35 years ago, and I uh, knew nothing of, of the layout, but after about two months, I found out very quickly we, we, had, we were badly flooded. And probably a few times since then. Mm. The uh, last they... real time was when we had done a huge revamp. It was, it was, it was, it was a, a very bad one. Yesterday wasn't as bad as it looked. I think social media now, makes, uh, um, depending on the angle mm. and the commentary and that, makes it look kind of worse than it was. It was really only around the front of the shop. Okay. We had sandbags up. We have a huge drain opened, and we're, we're like we're well, well versed and prepared, prepared for this. And then um, it kind of looked bad. I know on the social media, but it wasn't quite that bad. Well, that's we still good. are going around and lifting tiles and into nooks and crannies with Milton. And, and you know, yeah. you, you have to wash the floor probably twenty, thirty. I'd say about forty times now. We're we're still at it. You know. Yeah. But it didn't. So, it didn't actually flood or flow into the supermarket in in, in a, a torrent or anything like that. It comes in, yeah. The, the 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 water comes down from all the other lanes. That probably something to do with uh, you know some some uh, some drains not being 
cleared, you know. Yeah. So it, I come from all those roads and right down to this spot. And it's amazing to see the speed that it lifts them. Mm. It lifts up really quickly and it comes in. And the worst thing that could happen then is if the cars go by, it, it, it forms waves. And then, the you know, that's, yes. that's kind of that. Yes, yes, yes. So uh, I know it was in all right. Yeah, I mean, okay. With lots of water in the shop. But right, it's okay. not the first time, you know. Yeah, yeah. But it, did, did you, obviously, did it close you yesterday evening? Are you open today? Yes. I were open the whole time. All the time, well, so it didn't stop it. Immediately, there were, there oh, were grand. staff Great. that were off duty, were even even came down and they were calling in and the phones were hopping with people who wanted to come down with buckets and mops. People are incredibly generous. Ah, yes. You know, and that's yes. from all over town, the locals and the staff and everybody, they're unbelievable, you know. Mm, ah, that's good um, to hear. But uh, you know, as you say yourself, you're, 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 you've had this a number of times, you had the sandbags and you can uh, do a few things yourself. I would say, now, I, we have a statement from Loud County Council saying, you know that was unprecedented and the gullies can only cater for so much and that they have a regular rigorous cleaning program of their gullies um in my if you want my opinion the last you know the dry spell what it lasted six weeks or more with all gullies you know it get, it hardens within whatever's in there and if you don't get to them when it rains heavier and a bit of bother you know that yeah, no, we've had worse years where they were actually caked. That wasn't really this. We've had a good yeah. bit of rain before. Now, yesterday's downpour, you know what I mean, it's something else. Um, there probably is a job to be done. I know P.O. Smith was on to me and P.O. was making calls and doing his best. There is an issue here. There's no point in saying there isn't. Mm. Um, I don't know who's at fault with Irish water or what, but there's no doubt there's an issue here. But like we'd have great help from council workers and from the from the workers in the fire brigade. They'd help us and we'd sandbags and they blocked block the road so the waves, you know, the the fire brigade does stop cars coming down for a while yeah. until until it's subsided. So everyone digs in and mucks in, the council workers, PO, the fire brigade, the staff and neighbours and everybody, you know. Yeah. That's what makes it work. So like everything kind of worked out fine in the end. But when you've that amount of people, you're willing to roll up their sleeves, it's amazing, you know, it kind of solves nearly any problem, you know. It's all about community and supporting one another. John, I leave it there for today. Good to hear you're open oh, and flying the away there, John. Absolutely. Thanks Take care of yourself. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. John Walsh there, owner of Centre in Harmons Gardens in Drada, who had water to deal with, but, you know, he's used to it. He gets on with it. And again, Loud County Council saying they have a rigorous gully cleaning regime and all gullies are kept clean and free-flowing by our crews, proactively cleaning all 3,000 gullies in the town. It's a big, big job. It surely is. Lawrence Centre in Drogheda also hit yesterday evening and a statement from Centre Manager Kira Nixon that says, despite the dramatic and massive volume of rainfall yesterday in a short period of time, damage was minimal in the shopping centre malls and after a clean-up by our staff and safety assessments, all our stores except Mark and Marks and Spencer are open today. M&S hoping to reopen tomorrow morning. That's Thursday. Our social media will keep customers updated and she said goes on to say the primary concern was for customers and staff safety yesterday and they want to thank all our customers for the support and understanding that comes in from the manager of the uh, centre there, the Lawrence Centre, Kira Nixon. Late lunch LMFM radio after three bullies acre and my top five countdown. Ah, oh, Louise, you're so kind. My girl, her new one, a massive hit, Kylie. She's timeless, isn't she? It's Miss Minogue. And padam, padam, well, damn everything. I'm going to sit back and enjoy her with our new big hit in the UK and right across the uh, globe. Kylie Minogue on Late Lunch.
counting down the top five songs from this week of yesteryear. And today it's the number three from this very week in 1987. And a lot of people wouldn't associate this fellow with music at all because, you see, at that time he was riding it high in terms of fame and fortune with Moonlighting. Remember that one? And of course, the Die Hard series of films. Yes, I'm talking about, of course, Bruce Willis. He had indeed uh, a spell where his music and singing was fantastic and he could sing and he could play as well the song we're featuring today was written by Kenny Young and Arthur Resnick and recorded by the Drifters back in 1964 but it's been covered by so many artists in the interim the likes of Bette Midler the Rolling Stones yes uh, John Mellencamp etc all covered this one but our song today yes it's Mr Willis with an all time classic here he is Under the Boardwalk Hey, what's up, fellas? You're hanging out down here with us under the boardwalk. Yeah, yeah, man, I got my lady down. Let's throw down. Oh, when the sun beats down and melts the tar up on the roof. We'll be falling in love under the boardwalk. boardwalk. Mr. Bruce Willis, our number three top five countdown from this week in 1987. Under the boardwalk, I'm sure they're accompanied by... The Temptations, and it wasn't the only big hit he had. Respect Yourself was another cover he did as well that uh, went to number two in the UK charts. And you're telling me Under the Boardwalk, Louise, went to number two as well. Yeah, from what I can find out in the UK charts, yeah. There you are. We could have been playing it on a Tuesday. We we will be playing it on Tuesday. (laughs) Oh, did you hear that? Did you hear that? We will be playing it on Tuesday. Because, folks, you might not know, but our Louise swoons every time you mention the word Bruce I do. I'm Willis. watching him here on Top of the Pops 1987 uh, singing yeah. that song. Yeah. Oh, did you I'm love him? smile em? on my face for the next Did you love minutes. him? Did you love him? Oh, yeah. <gasps> do you get the heebie-jeebies, did you, when yeah. you saw him? Yeah. Mm, oh. The only thing wrong with that version is it's too short. Well, that's the song. <laughs> yeah, but, you know, it's good add in if you more his What, what do you want to do? Repeat the chorus yeah. and the chorus again? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know what I'm going to do for you. I'm going to uh, put, put three versions on a loop for you. And you can listen to it. You can stick it in your car. You stick it on your phone or three, whatever. Three versions? Oh, the same version? Oh, the same version. Oh, right, you know, okay. Three of them looped or whatever. And you can you can have a listen to it. I crashed the car. <laughs> <laughs> your Honour, I was listening to Bruce Willis. <laughs> he let me off every time. Case dismissed. Hope it's a Willis fan that you encounter. No, that won't happen. It won't happen, I can assure you. <laughs> anyway, Bruce Willis, Louise loves him. Number three from this week in 1987 with Under the Boardwalk on your late lunch. Final break of the day on the way and we're going to have a chat about Bully's Acre in a moment. There's a well-known Bully's Acre at Kilmainham in Dublin, but did you know there's a Bully's Acre in Drogheda? as well and there's probably a link between the two but Bully's Acre is on the south side of town Uh, it's just opposite St Mary's Cemetery which is the biggest cemetery on the south side of Drogheda and a a few individuals have got involved in cleaning Bully's Acre up and one of them joins me on the line Anthony Flanagan hello Anthony Hello, Jerry. How are you? I'm really good. Uh, our Matthew was passing by and met you guys and had a chat and was talking to me and that's why we're chatting today. Anyway, tell us, what are you up to in Bully's Acre? What are you doing? 
Basically, uh, we're trying to restore the graveyard back to what it was. Uh, basically, we've cut all the grass. In fact, there's a guy here at the moment with a commercial machine, and he's doing some cutting. We restored the old cross, cleaned her up because it was in a massive state altogether. We planted flowers around the base of it. We've uh, restored one of the pathways, about 90 metres of it, uh, back to where it was, cleaned her up. There's a couple of seat benches in there. We're, we're in the process of getting them repaired and brought back into use. Uh, there is an old 1938 map we're using as our base uh, plan. And basically, there's approximately 300 metres of pathways all around Fully's Acre. We're going to bring them back, hopefully, into use again. And uh, that's basically our plan. Mm. Um, the main thing we need is more volunteers to help out, um, maybe companies to sponsorship um, Spark. We're using that for footpaths. And was the flowers uh, to plant all the way around the footpaths as well. Yeah, now, now just hold you there for a second, just to let yeah. listeners know. This is an ancient burial ground. Correct. Are there any headstones or have you come across anything like that that are still there that show or or uh, show you where there are graves? There is no headstones. There's one centre cross. Yeah. There's no inscriptions on it at all. Basically, it was, it's the type that was put around in all like salmon graveyards. That's the only one headstone that's there has a cross on it. So where uh, to the western side of the graveyard uh, three or four graves and one of them belonged to a German guy who washed up on the coast in 1940. Yes. And uh, his body was taken back up in the early 60s and buried over in the German war grave uh, in Glencree and Wicklow. Okay, so he was he was exhumed, his body was exhumed. He was the last burial actually there in 1940, uh, November 1940. So his body has been removed and it's probably understandable because it was paupers who went to the workhouse, which the cemetery is associated with, the workhouse on the Dublin Road, and there probably wouldn't have been money to put stones or, or mark graves no. or, or whatever. But tell me this, you, you, who are you? Who who controls Bully's Acre now? And who, who are you? What is your group? Have you the authority to do what you're doing? We are volunteers. Okay. To myself, there's a guy by the name of Bobby Timmerman, a Dutchman, uh, John Dice and Sandra. Okay. And there's four of us. We've had a number of people over the last few weeks coming in helping us the odd bit here and there, but it's basically down to four of us at the moment. Mm. And we're looking for more volunteers to come in and help us. And tell me, does does anyone control this piece of ground? Does it come under the auspices of anybody, church or state? Um, the answer to that question, uh, the silence is deafening. Okay. We don't know. Yeah. Uh, we have inquired politely and received no replies whatsoever. So, as I say to you, Jerry, we're in here as volunteers trying to clean up uh, a mess that's been left here for the last 20 years plus.
Mm. And I commend you for that because too many people talk forever and do nothing. You are people of action and you're getting in there. And of course you'll have people saying, what are they? Who are they? Have they the authority? People like me asking you those type of things. But anyway, (laughs) (laughs) Um, look, um, it it is a burial ground, I'm sure, for many. There is a mark there with the cross. And what you're trying to do is bring something or bring respectability and respect to those who lie there. And it is their resting place. As I said, you you know this anyway it was associated with the workhouse that was Correct. built for the relief of the distressed of Drogheda and district back in April 1840 we're going back a long time there and yeah. then it became a place called the spike I used to hear my parents saying never yeah. put me in the spike and uh, Boyne View House replaced that a lovely place in more recent times um, yeah. anyway so you're on here today you're looking for help yes I can tell you what we need okay go on Right, the first thing we need is more volunteers. All right. We're looking for companies to sponsor us with a shredding machine for taking away light bra- or get a do away with light branches and green waste material because we want to use that again on the footpath. Mm. Uh, we're looking for cutting machines, hedging type, uh, wildflower seeds and any quantities whatsoever because we've approximately 280 metres of footpaths. Yeah. That's what's going to be there. And we're going to put the wildflowers around the footpaths so that this time next year it'll be nice looking. Yeah. Uh, we're looking for another bark wood type chipping material for the foot on the footpaths so that it's a kind of a green footpath again. We're also looking for uh, some company to make us up eight new benches, either metal or stone type. Uh, to put around different locations of the footpath. Okay. And we also want to get uh, some company to put an inscription on the cross to Bully's Acre uh, to say what it is. And maybe down the line to get a proper stone at the entrance uh, to describe what Bully's Acre is, a bit of history, and for not to be people asking, where is Bully's Acre? Or yes, yes, I hear all you're saying. And what they can do is drop in and call into you there at Bully's Acre and say hello and make yes. contact that way. Is that okay? Yes, and I'd like to make a good ta- great thank you to George Hoy, uh, Hoy Maintenance Limited, who actually great. cut the grass for us. Lovely. Good to talk to you, Anthony. Wish you well. Thank you very much for your time, Jerry. Take care now. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. I'm sure other issues will raise their heads as regards things like insurance and that as well, but that's for another day. Anyway, Paul McKenna's coming next to the drive here on LMFM Radio. See you tomorrow at half one, leaving you in the company of Calvin Harris and his good friend. It's a miracle. See you tomorrow. Oh, no. When you touch me, I get vulnerable.